Hello, and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps, speaking to you from sunny Austin, Texas. I'm here with Robin. Good morning, Robin. Oh, hello. And I'm here with Ryan Hemmer. Good morning, Ryan. Good morning. Uh, And I am also here with a very special guest, Jacob Renderconnect. Good morning, Jacob. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Jacob is here in my cavernous, very ugly office in uh, San Antonio. He's just sitting right next to me. It's a delight. Um, we don't have a Brian Baycheck today. Poor guy is under the weather. So um, hopefully he'll be uh, f- feeling better in the next couple of weeks and we'll have him back on the show soon. Uh, today we're going to talk about synods and synodality, a topic about which uh, I know not that much, but Jacob here uh, knows a, a good little bit and he's going to help us think about it. But first, uh, we want to get to know who Jacob is a little bit. So, uh, Jacob, who are you? What do you do? And then we'll do guest questions. Thanks. So um, I've known a couple of these folks for a long time from Marquette. Uh, I'm now at University of the Incarnate Word, or as nobody but me calls it, Jesus U, uh, here in San Antonio, uh, where I direct the um, Pastoral Institute, which is has both a bachelor's and a master's program. Uh, it's the undergraduate program is mostly young men preparing for seminary, and the master's program is mostly um, lay people preparing to be lay ecclesial ministry. Uh, it's a really great program. It, we just celebrated our 50th anniversary last weekend. I think we might be the oldest surviving lay formation program in the country, if not, we're the second, but not far off. Uh, founded by the Sisters of the Charity of the Incarnate Word, who came down to Texas from France in order to take care of cholera patients, which led to orphans, which led to a school, which led to a university. And here we are. J- here Jacob we are. is is uh, technically and officially my boss down at uh, Mexican American Catholic College. It's true. Where I teach philosophy a couple days a week. Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm a systematic theologian. I work uh, on ecclesiology and ecumenism primarily, although I've been doing a lot with cognitive science and theology these last couple of years. Um, so I'm really interested in how metaphor shapes what communities can say and believe. We're going we're gonna to do an episode with Jacob and uh, with his co-author and co-editor, Aaron Kidd, uh, that'll be up in the next uh, week or two. We'll get to talk about some of that stuff as well. Okay, so uh, we have guest questions, a um, couple of which you've heard before, and I came up with a new one because I didn't like my old one. So, hey, Robin, I'm going to throw to you. What's our first guest question? Um, hey, Jacob, I just, I want to know, um, and remember, your loved ones are listening, and they will tweet us if you lie. Um, <laughs> plus, I don't know what the incarnate, incarnate word would say about that. Mm. Um, but uh, I want to know what your worst fashion choice was. And you can talk about, like, you know, like you dress this way for like a year or like you just showed up at an event in very much the wrong thing. But I just want to know, like, what are you kind of most ashamed of or secretly proud that you rocked in public? So I'm not sure if I'm ashamed of it or not, but I do know that this is what shows up on Ryan's phone every time that I call him because he <laughs> found this in the depths of Facebook and decided that that should be my avatar. So after college, I spent a year in the Cascade Mountains of Washington at a place called Holden Village working as a potter, which kind of a great way to spend a year. But during this year, I had hair down past my shoulders, usually in French braids, wearing um, absolutely pottery, uh, clay-stained overalls, and um, a, a uh, what do you call it, a, a handkerchief over my hair to keep it back um, nice. so that it wouldn't get into the clay. So... If you ask Ryan nicely later, he might show you the picture. Um, but you can, oh, also a beard like out to, you know. So I looked like I had just walked off of the mountain um, <laughs> and might, in fact, you know, carry off small children if you weren't watching me. Which is also the look of the Cascades, right? Like, no, exactly. I, I mean, blended in really well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, terrific. Hey, Ryan, you have a guest question. So, uh, you might have to think long and hard about this one. Uh, not just because you cook a lot, but that you're also pretty good at it. So, uh, you know, to make, a to make an omelet, sometimes you got to break a few eggs. So, uh, what's your most memorable, uh, cooking fail? Oh, that's, um, that's not hard actually. So, 
In 2008, I had just left the Benedictine monastery where I used to be and had moved to Utah for a variety of reasons um, and was in my tiny little apartment with uh, not great cooking supplies because I hadn't, you know, I'd been a monk. I didn't have a lot of stuff and I didn't have, I had stuff I had collected mostly from, you know, going to the thrift store and seeing what was there. And for whatever reason, I woke up one Saturday morning and decided I was going to make beignets. <laughs> Which, you know, I suppose you do. Yeah. Um, But I did not have a terribly deep pan. And um, after making the first batch of beignets, the second set of dough went in and I was a little bit uncareful and nearly burned my kitchen down. And thankfully, my kitchen was cement block and really ugly first apartment. Uh, but there was also a fire extinguisher there and I managed to get it all put out. Um, so I got to use my monastic firefighter training to keep my, uh, <laughs> beignets from burning down the apartment building. I pulled a similar move making fried chicken once. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to make sure you didn't have a tonsure while you were a Benedictine. Cause I just want to say that that's a worse fashion statement. You know, there's only one American monastery that gives tonsure and it's St. Meinrad's in Indiana. Uh, they don't, you don't have to keep it, but when you get your, when you take first vows and I think maybe when you, when you're a novice, they give you the tonsure. Um, I was a monk at St. John's in Collegeville, Minnesota, and they do not give tonsure like, you know, sane human beings. I love you, St. Meinrad's. (laughs) Jacob, Jacob is a a font of information about tonsure that, that there's, I didn't know more than one kind. There are in fact three. Yes, right. Go, come on, let's rattle through them. Okay, so what you're thinking of with the circle around your head is called Petrine tonsure. Um, There's also Pauline tonsure, which is when you shave your entire head. And my personal favorite is Gaelic tonsure, which was one of the three things that was discussed at the Synod of Whitby, trying to reunify the Irish church with the Continental Church. That old chestnut. Yeah, so we had the, they talked about how monks should cut their hair the date of Easter and whether or not bishops should be subordinate to abbots and the Irish lost on all three counts. Uh, but in, in Gaelic tonsure, you shave all of the hair forward from your ears. And it's just possibly the silliest haircut ever invented so by humans. It's, it's pretty close You're to a skullet then. So yeah, what we're saying fair. is it like, kind of like down home, like you know, <laughs> 80s hairstyling is really just the Irish getting back because of the Synod of Whitby. Yeah, that sounds right. I was going to say, it seems like, you know, an ambitious European soccer player might have that haircut, but, um, all right. My question is, uh, another question just totally stolen from the bombshell podcast. What is your favorite bar in the world? Ooh, that's a good question. I think I'm going to have to go with the palm, uh, which, yeah, yeah. The Palm is in Bayview, Milwaukee. It was a block and a half from my former house, which uh, made it convenient. Although in Milwaukee, there is a bar every, I think by law, every 700 feet, uh, (laughs) including in the grocery store that was two blocks from my house in the other direction. But the Palm had um, quite possibly the best whiskey and non-Belgian beer selection I've ever seen. Uh, The same people owned another bar that specialized in Belgian-style beers. And so the rule was there couldn't be Belgian-style beers at the Palm, which I was okay with. It's just responsible. Yeah. Uh, And it looked like, it looks like a really rundown duplex when you're walking down the street. You would have no idea that this place is a bar um, at all. and then you sort of have to go into this dark doorway into a bar that can maybe seat 25 people on a good night. Um, but it's, it's a, it is such a good place that in fact, when uh, this has only happened once, but it's something I hope to make a tradition that the uh, Marquette crowd gets together sometimes online for what we've been calling the pop-up cyber palm, um, which is Christopher Hadley's coining. Oh, that's very uh, nice. Theologian out at JSTB. Um, so yeah, the Palm in Milwaukee, it's on Kinnikinnick. If you're ever sort of tooling around Bayview, it's worth stopping in. Uh, I think for the entirety of my tenure in Milwaukee, they, they would have local art on the walls. Um, and for the entirety of my tenure there, they had white plaster bosoms with conical nipples. Yes, there were many of them. Yeah, and they were, they, they, they were dispersed throughout the walls of the place. Um, they, the, they the bathroom crowded. was so small that the sink couldn't be physically in the bathroom. And so the sink right. was actually outside in the main area of the bar. 
Oh, I'm a little disappointed. I thought you were going to say the bathroom was so small and they put the conical nipple art in there too and it would just like brush your face as you sat down. Oh, that's that's a very vivid image. Uh, On the other hand, everyone does know if you wash your hands after you. True. That is true. But the, the, other, the other great uh, thing about, about the Palm is that if they had music playing at all, it was playing at a very low level. And so you could go there and easily have a conversation. And it was, uh, it was unique among Milwaukee bars in that respect. Yeah, that's true. All right. So let's, uh, Jacob, nice to meet you. Uh, let's get down to business. So, um, Ryan, I'm going to toss this to you. Word on the street is that uh, there was a synod recently. That's what they, that's what they say. Uh-huh. Uh, what, what was that about? Well, you know, in, 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 uh, in a summer filled with uh, bad news in, in Catholic land, um, overshadowed uh, a bit by, by scandal and uh, scandal upon scandal, was the fact that um, a long-prepared-for synod uh, took place uh, on young people. Um, so this is, this is um, one of several, well, at least two that I can think of, synods that have occurred uh, during Francis' papacy. Um, a controversial synod on the family, uh, which produced a, a, a now somewhat infamous footnote um, that causes canon lawyers and uh, partisans of all kinds to argue about marriage and the Eucharist. This was another synod, um, ostensibly about young people. Um, the The sort of program was not uh, was was not as obvious and not as well publicized, especially because there was so many other things breaking in Catholic news at the time. But the synod did, in fact, occur, despite some calls from some to cancel it in light of the the scandal that was that was then um, sort of roiling. Um, but it did, it did in fact occur. As we record this, the final document uh, that the Synod produced is not been translated into English. Um, there's, a, there's a review uh, summary of it in America Magazine. Uh, a couple of other places claim to have gotten their hands on it. If it's floating around the internet in Italian, but, uh, but a, an, an English version does not yet exist. Um, at least not one that's publicly available. So as we record this, we don't really know too many of the details about uh, what occurred or what conclusions were um, forthcoming from from the Synod. But uh, it serves as a, as I think, as a good occasion, or in systematically terms, an exigence, uh, to talk about the... Uh, theological uh, elements of ecclesiology that are relevant to synods sort of in themselves. And since none of us are, you know, Brian's the closest thing we have to a real ecclesiologist. Uh, and as you, as you listeners may remember from times we've tried to talk about ecclesiology, we really just end up talking about philosophy. Uh, so we decided to, to have Jacob come on, who's a, an actual ecclesiologist, to help us kind of explore the the actual theological uh, structures and um, ideas that animate um, the 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 theology of synodality, so um, so we're not probably going to spend that much time talking about uh, the synod that's just occurred, in part because we don't have too many details, but also because I think. For our purposes on this podcast, what we really want to get to is the theology of synodality uh, that's embedded within the ecclesiology of, of Vatican II. So I, so I have like a super basic question because this is so far from my area. Like, what is a synod? That's actually a really complicated question. So, so like, start there. Why is it? So maybe we can do it by contrast. Uh, why is it or is it not a council? So... Right. This is why, where we start getting complicated. The Second Vatican Council actually repeatedly refers to itself as a synod. Oh, okay. So to differentiate between a synod and a council is not actually that easy. Oh. Okay. Um, and part of it is it's just a Latin Greek problem, right? So we have synodos and concilium. Um, but 
So I'm teaching ecclesiology to my master's students this fall. And uh, you can imagine that this is a weird semester to teach ecclesiology with lots and lots of conversation about the church and to what, ex to what it is and to what extent it's li li living up to its calling, where it's failing and all that. And so throughout this semester, our sort of, um, our, the leitmotif of the semester has been that to do ecclesiology well, you have to think consistently and simultaneously along two parallel tracks. And those two tracks are theology and politics, because, and you can't ever totally distinguish them, but you have to sort of try and keep them, I think, separate enough so that you realize what you're talking about when you're talking about it. Um, and I, I promise I'll get back to synods in a minute. No, 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 this is great. You know, so one of the reasons that, that we made sure to invite Jacob on was the last time we sort of brushed up against ecclesiology, we did what we always do on this show, which is we start with some theological provocation and then we wandered off into the philosophical analogous. We all we kind of tend to hit that kind of um, speculative theological approach. And Jacob wrote a great blog post saying, hey, there's this whole other set of explicitly theological uh, tools for talking about what the church is that aren't a philosophy of community or of politics um, that, have to do, that, that have to do with sacramentality and these kinds of things. Um, and I thought, well, that's exactly right. So we, this is part of why Jacob is here. Um, so, so anyway, which is just to say that, right, in that instance, we had a kind of one-sided approach where we took the sort of political and philosophical angle. But as you're saying, there needs to be the sort of, um, you, gotta, you have to hold both hands when you're doing ecclesiology. Right. And so let me, if we can go back about a decade and a half, um, you, you may remember, some of your listeners may remember that uh, there was this sort of famous debate between Cardinals Ratzinger and Casper about, about the church, right? And it shows up in among other places, the Pages of America magazine, other, um, other periodicals. And there was this sort of moment in which two of the best known cardinals of the day were disagreeing with each other in public, but very carefully and um, in a very scholarly and interested and engaged way about the question of whether the universal church is prior to the local church or not. Casper uh, was arguing for their simultaneity. Ratzinger was arguing for the logical priority of the universal church. Um, and in the middle of that, Cardinal Casper uh, says, this is in 99, that, um, that Ratzinger's formula of the logical priority of the universal church, quote, becomes thoroughly problematic if the universal church is being covertly identified with the Church of Rome and de facto with the Pope and the Curia. If that happens, the letter from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, this is a letter that touched off the whole conversation, cannot be read as an aid in clarifying communion ecclesiology, but as a dismissal of it, and as an attempt to restore Roman centralism. Now, interestingly, Ratzinger's response to this in sort of typical uh, Joseph Ratzinger uh, moment was, well, of course that's not what I'm saying. Anyone who's saying that, saying the universal church uh, is prior, is tr actually trying to restore Roman centralism, is not being a theologian, or at least a good one. Um, and he's just confused. He's, he's so tied up in the ideas and sort of the logical necessity of the universal coming first that he's not thinking politically about this conversation. Whereas Casper, also very typical to his way of engagement, is thinking about what the real world political implications of the theology are. And in a sense, that's, the, that's where the, um, the friction between them comes. Uh, anyone who's interested, by the way, in this, dial, in this whole thing, there's the best thing to start with is... Um, Killian McDonald, who's a monk at St. John's and an amazing theologian, uh, he's got to be in his early 90s now, um, wrote a review of the whole debate in theological studies that uh, is both very easy to get into and I think very incisive in talking about what happens there. So I bring that up only to say there's a, if we talk about the priority of the universal church, and this is going to be very much at stake in everything we talk about with synods. Um, as a logical reality that the universal has to come before the local. And then we, without thinking about it, say, and therefore the curia is more important than the local church. We've made a mistake, right? Um, and so every... In, in the view of both Casper and Ratzinger. Yes, in the view of both Casper and Ratzinger, we've made a mistake 
by doing that. Um, and to quote Susan Wood uh, from Marquette, um, who I, is eminently quotable among being, along with being quite brilliant, uh, you can't get on an airplane and go to the Universal Church. Uh, or she also says, if you can't find the Universal Church where you are, you're not going to find it anywhere. And so there's this temptation over and over again to think of the Universal Church as something like the federal government, right? So you can go to the federal government. I was in DC a couple of weekends ago. You can walk up to the federal government and be there. And that's not what happens when we're talking about universality in the church. We're talking, the, so the Pope is, the Pope has a particular charism for the unity of the universal church. And, but when you're in Rome, you are in the archdiocese of Rome, not in the universal church, right? Does, does that, if that makes sense. Um, so, so is there anyone, um, you know, among like maybe some of the extreme kind of pro, you know, papal conservatives who are going to argue that the universal church and the curia are equal, or is this more kind of one of those like not well thought out things where they just elide? I think it's more the second, although to be honest, we have, you know, several hundred years of Roman centralism of various kinds that sort of did this legally and canonically, if not always theologically. Right. So, um, we, when we're fighting about things like the universal jurisdiction of the papacy, we are sort of covertly, sometimes overtly, talking about the necessity of universality in the Catholic Church, right? And so if you think about the arguments you've heard about the Second Vatican Council and its understandings of the liturgy and enculturation, um, canon law, the place of the papacy, even when the Second Vatican Council, this is where we're finally getting to synodality, starts talking about what a bishop is, right? Um, oh, actually, no. So yeah, let me take, take a step back. In the Middle Ages, my students love, love to tease me that whenever they ask a question, I take four steps back and each time realize I have to go keep going farther back. So in the Middle Ages, it's pretty unclear what a bishop is theologically right? There's two major ways of thinking about this. The first sees bishops as um, bishops of diocese, properly speaking, which who have their own ordination, which is not the same thing as their ordination to the priesthood. This, by the way, is the view that will eventually be taken up in the Second Vatican Council, which says that bishops have full, immediate, and full, immediate, and there's a third thing ordinary jurisdiction in their diocese. And the immediate is the really important one because it means their jurisdiction is not mediated through the Pope, right? That by virtue of their ordination as bishops, they have jurisdiction in their diocese. The other view, which is pushed, if we want to even go farther back, very much that of St. Jerome, uh, is that bishops are priests, right? Uh, and that Bishops are priests with particular jurisdictions. Um, and Jerome doesn't work out all the implications of this. I mention him only because uh, you may, um, I sometimes work on Lutheran things and the Lutheran Catholic argument in the Middle Ages. And uh, the Lutherans, when they're arguing for the ability of pastors to ordain other pastors, look back to Jerome in order to sort of substantiate that position. By the time we get to the Middle Ages, this is fleshed out in terms of the Pope, however, and the bishops are seen as priests who have been given jurisdiction by the Pope. So then you have this order where the only person who's sort of higher than a priest sacramentally, although not really sacramentally, is the papacy, right? And so then you become the bishop of Austin, Texas, by the Pope saying to you, I am giving you jurisdiction in Austin, Texas. Right, which is partly why the lay investiture controversies of the Middle Ages are so fraught, because the Pope is arguing with local uh, kings about what, who gets to actually give jurisdiction to bishops. So again, notice that politics and theology are sort of entwined in each other in a way that's it's really hard to totally disentangle, right? And so in that idea that um, bishops are priests with jurisdiction, so we, we can see, for example, that in the Middle Ages, popes gave abbots who were not ordained as bishops permission to ordain other priests in their monasteries, that even those sort of powers that go along that we now sort of habitually think of as being proper to a bishop were delegated. Um, they were sacramental powers available to a priest that could only be 
exercise with the permission of the Pope, licitly, right? So in that system, then, what you have is a sort of centralized papacy, and then all of the local sort of governors who hold, the, who serve at the pleasure of the papacy, basically. Or then this other model of bishops who, by virtue of being bishops, have their local governance and their, their relationship to their local church. Does that make sense as a sort of distinction? Yeah. Yeah, but uh, I'm going to follow up with, this, with another stupid question, but isn't the Pope just a bishop? Yes and no. <clears throat> because the Pope, is, the Pope is a bishop, and the Second Vatican Council clarifies that he, is, he has his office within and as the head of the College of Bishops. And so even when he is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, even when he is exercising his universal office, he's doing so as a bishop in communion with the other bishops. But he also has full ordinary universal jurisdiction. And the universal jurisdiction allows the Pope to override, jump into um, a particular diocese in a way that no other bishop and not even another metropolitan can do. So yes and no, right? The Pope becomes the Pope by becoming the Bishop of Rome and holds his office within the, the, um, within the communion of the other bishops. And he is unique. Does that make, I mean, this is not a thing that we have systematized in a way that I think is completely clear to anybody. Um, Vatican I uh, says a lot of things about the, the office of the papacy. And there's this famous moment where Bismarck actually says to the German bishops, see, you're just delegates of the Pope. And the bishops say, no, that's not what Vatican I means. And the Pope backs them up on it. Um, and then at Vatican II, we get a theology of the Episcopate, which settles these medieval debates finally, saying, you know, that bishops are, have their own full, ordinary, immediate uh, jurisdiction in their diocese as a piece of being ordained. And so it's really at Vatican II that it's clarified that bishops are ordained at all, uh, rather than consecrated. Um, and so then, so then this is all setting us up for synods. Right. So thanks. <laughs> I got you. So a synod then is, I mean, there's different levels of synods. You can have a diocesan synod, right? Um, you can, at which of course, there's only going to be in most dioceses one bishop, right? Uh, but then you can have local synods historically, and some of the local synods were very, very important. You know, Orange, Leon, um, some of the, some of these. Toledo. Toledo, yep. The Lateran synods are actually local synods. Um, and then sort of a, you can have ecumenical councils, which are universal synods. Although, as we know, prior to Vatican II, none of them had, and maybe Vatican I, none of them had a universal representation of all the bishops just because difficulty traveling, etc. Um, so what exactly the jurisdiction of a synod is gets tied up into, again, a political struggle from the Middle Ages that we can call conciliarism, right? So. Um, Within this whole structure of arguing about who bishops are and what they do, you have this parallel development around arguing about what the limits of the powers of the popes are in the Middle Ages. And that's both against the bishops and against the kings. Which gets, you know, really complicated when suddenly we get the papal schism, right? So the story there, in short, is that the cardinals elect a pope. He's just recently back from. Avenue, I think, since we have a Roman Pope for the first time in a while, and uh, if I'm getting that history right. Anyway, the Cardinals elect a Pope. About a month later, they have um, real buyer's remorse about the Pope they elected. They decide that since they elected the Pope, they are capable of deposing him. <clears throat> so they go off to another town and elect a different Pope. But what do you think the first Pope does? He doesn't say, oh yeah, of course, right? So suddenly we have two Popes, one the Roman Pope and the Avignon Pope. And then uh, that goes on for a while until the Synod of um, Constance, right? Council of Constance, which along with um, burning Jan Hus, oh, I'm sorry, they're the ones who actually saw that. It's the Synod of Pisa, I think, before that, who tries to depose both popes. My favorite thing about <laughs> this is that Jacob keeps looking at me to confirm uh, <laughs> yeah. as though I have any idea. 
Also, doesn't the Pisa Synod just like try to depose both, elect one, and then they end up with three? Yes, so we end up with three popes. So we have the uh, moment of the three Which popes. is like so Trinitarian. I mean, the church should have just stuck with it. <laughs> You're yeah, getting into social analogy territory, so I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> not get you after you knock that nonsense off right now. Well, it's also really hard to claim universal jurisdiction when you have two other people with whom you are not in a hypostatic union. Hmm. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> the um, so we have three popes, right? And so then the count the, the in, in our story, not presently. No one gets too anxious. <laughs> I, I pulled my copy of Deansley's History of the Medieval Church off the shelf to fact check here. Okay, well, tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> While I've taught this recently, it wasn't last week. Um, so the uh, so we then when we get along to Constance and we burn Jan Hus at the stake, setting up the beginnings of the Reformation and giving Protestants reason to not come to councils for the next couple hundred years. We also finally get two of the popes to resign. And the third one's old enough, he's going to die a couple of years later, and nobody replaces him. And we finally get a single papacy, right? But you can imagine how for a medieval papacy, which is, and remember, I'm speaking politically here more than theologically, right? Uh, when you have a medieval papacy that is um, struggling against kings for supremacy in all of the local places, it's now sort of up and against a council that has removed popes. Mm -hmm. And so the sort of universal and sort of pope as head of Christendom model, which they've been pushing over and against all of the emperors, um, you know, to the extent you all know the story about Canossa, right? With uh, Henry standing out in the snow, having to beg the, um, beg the pope's forgiveness so he can keep being the Holy Roman emperor. That had happened a couple centuries prior. The sort of lead up to that is that um, Henry had said, well, as Holy Roman Emperor, I'm removing you as Pope. And the Pope said, well, as Pope, I'm excommunicating you as Holy Roman Emperor. And turned out that the um, nobles cared more about what the Pope said than about what the Emperor said. And so Henry lost and ended up standing in the snow. Um, so we, we've got this sort of idea of conciliar of what comes to be called conciliarism, which is the idea that the council or an ecumenical council is above the Pope which is repudiated over and over and over again by medieval popes and is one of the things that's sort of haunting the Reformation era mm -hmm. because the things that the Lutherans keep asking for is a free universal council in the German nation. In other words, in part of the world where the Pope has less ability to control it. And so it's interesting that when Trent actually happens, it happens at Trent because Trent is technically in the Holy Roman Empire. But it's close enough in Italy that the Pope, it's close enough to Rome that the Pope could financially support a bunch of poor Southern Italian bishops to come and kind of help stack the council. So that, you know, so that's where that sort of, we end up there. And which is partly why, by the way, the French don't um, accept Trent for 50 or 80 years after the council because it was too German and not nearly French enough. Um, so it's sort of in some sense, our, our contemporary idea that um, the universality of the church is obvious, right? That councils, ecumenical councils rule and then it's over, or the Pope says something and that settles it, is really new, right? It's a product of the Tridentine period um, and Catholics desire to sort of have this center of unity in a way that they hadn't really had completely before. And right, then Vatican, and yeah, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say, it's, one, it's really one of the chief arguments, because so as the only like excommunicated Catholic in the room, um, because I'm part of the Catholic branch of the Anglican Church. Um, that's one of the big arguments is whether the Pope was setting up another see in when he sent Augustine of Canterbury, mm -hmm. essentially, or whether um the you know the the Pope, the Bishop of Rome has universal authority, including like over the British Isle. You know, anyway, so the universality of the Pope ends up being a big, not not so much. A political but theological debate between i guess it's both political and theological debate no that's a great example it's Wait, actually, when the anglican when the anglican church splits off right right so the anglican the things that henry VIII is asking for were almost all um privileges that the king of france already had so when when henry VIII is talking about the english church and how he should be the head of the english church these privileges are already endowed in the french throne in a lot of ways um and in later in other thrones. So after Trent, you've got Maria, you've got the Austrian monarch um, 
claiming and not being the Pope's aren't pushing back on her right to approve uh, papal mandates in order to be published within her realm. Mm. Right. Um, yeah. So it, you're right that these are the sort of story that Catholics tell ourselves in, especially the 18, 1900s, especially American Catholics who are sort of really looking for this because the American Catholic church is, is, has became very, what we call ultramontanist in its structure, um, looking for a center of unity that was outside of itself and specifically over and against waspy America. Um, but uh, yeah, so that we end up with political, uh, theological arguments that are based on political grounds, if that makes sense. So what's a synod? <laughs> yeah. So the second, go ahead. Oh, uh, this question's about synod, because of course we have diocesan and then like country level synods to which we send lay representatives. Like, you know, there's a lay house, a priest house and a bishop house. In the Anglican communion. In the Anglican communion, which have fancier names. Um, I think it's just the other way around, House of Bishops, and then the other ones. Um, but I could be thinking of the British parliamentary system. No, you're so right. That's, how, that's my how that system. But anyway, so like there's, there's the bishops. So like, you know, each diocese, like, so each church sends lay delegates and the priest to the, like, diocesan synod, and then each diocese sends a bunch of lay priests and, of course, their bishop to the national synods. And I'm wondering, does the system work the same for... And we don't, I don't think we have topical synods anymore. So this is a new, like, I mean, I'm aware of it, obviously, for like on the Catholic side, but I don't really understand how the system works. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Um, so we are still figuring out how synods work because in a sense, they're reinvented by the Second Vatican Council. And they're really understood mostly as synods of bishops. Um, because we didn't have a theology of the Episcopacy really, or developed one prior to the Second Vatican Council. We still don't have a developed theology of the laity. Um, and so figuring out how to talk about how laity could actually participate in uh, these kinds of decisions is in some sense, it's just a theological non-starter um, be previously. Because, so um, I was just at a talk last week from uh, Ed Hannenberg, who's at John Carroll in Cleveland, uh, really excellent thinker on lay ecclesial ministry uh, and was pointing out that Eve Congar spent some time after the council trying to talk about what a theology of laity is and that it's really hard to define the word laity even using without using the word not. So all we have is this sort of negative description, right? And so our, our previous understanding of how the church was structured this way had sort of an absolute division as a sort of two layer cake of the clergy and the laity as the sort of two states, right? So the clergy are not laity and the laity are the people who are not clergy. And in that system, then it's really easy to talk about the teaching church and the listening church, right? Which is the language, the, um, or the learning church, the ecclesia docens and ecclesia discens, right? The, um, and that sort of static model fits really well. This is where sort of when you all were started talking about Canada a couple of weeks back, my, all of my ecclesiological hackles went up because that model works really well as long as you're thinking about the church primarily as a societal structure, which of course we have theologically too. So Cardinal Bellarmine pushing back against the Protestants says the church is as visible because what he's worried about is that the Protestants are making the church invisible, as visible as the body of the Roman people, the Republic of Venice or the Kingdom of France. Um, and the way that you know that France is really France is that it has the French king, right? And so it's these, these governmental structures that define the, the, the society. Ungar and Hannenberg then start saying that what happens at the council is a shift from talking about laity to Christi Fidelis, which is not the not clergy, but it's the whole body of Christian people within whom the clergy are also present. So we get these sort of concentric circle models, which um, fits with lots of other ways that the council's really thinking. So uh, as concentric circle models. So uh, the, the former prior of the Tizay community talks about going to visit Paul VI and having him talk about the church as these series of concentric circles reaching out eventually to include all of humanity, which is how we can talk, say, have Nostra Aetate, right? Or um, Rick Gallardi talks about in... Um, 
his most recent book on the council, which I'm blanking on the name right now, but talks about how the council comes up with ways of talking about theology in non-competitive terms, so non-zero-sum terms. So the bishops aren't, part of why we can talk about synods is the bishops aren't in competition with the papacy. The bishops and the papacy operate together in communion. And so a synod can be a joint teaching, a moment between the popes and the bishops because the, the pope and the bishops, because the pope is also within the college of bishops, right? So in that same model, then you can talk about a church, which includes within it priests, deacons, bishops. And then also this move, what I see happening with Francis is when he's talking about missionary discipleship, it's shifting the church from sort of a static model that sits there and is itself to a thing that participates in the missions of the Son and Spirit, right? And so as soon as you start talking about the church missionally, then suddenly you have um, this sort of ministries in the church, which now include lay ecclesial ministries, but also the ordained, of course, within the whole church, the Christi Fidelis light, right? And then that, but that whole thing, the energy is outward from the center, out past its own boundaries towards the rest of the world, right? So when, when I hear Francis talking about missionary discipleship, um, which as one of the Sister Terry Maya, who, if you haven't met her, she's the current president of, LC, of LCWR, which is the Leadership Con- Conference of Women Religious. She's also the, um, l- the congregational leader of the sisters who run my university, and I just adore her. Um, but she points out that for Francis, who's thinking primarily as someone that Spanish is his first language, missionary, missionary discipleship is in the other order. So you have disciples who are missionaries. Um, and that those two things can't be sort of disengaged from each other. And so now we're in, we can have a synod in which the question is, what is the mission of the church that we are all called to do? And not just what is the thing that we have from Jesus as a kind of unmoving deposit of faith that has to be taught. I mean, that is the, the first several chapters of, or, you know, first several paragraphs, at least of Lumen Gentium are, you know, explicitly about the, the, grounding of ecclesiology within the visible missions of the Son and the Spirit. It seems exactly. to me yeah. entirely uh, an outgrowth of the theology of Lumen Gentium. Right. No, exactly. And then um, Francis likes to look back quite a bit to the Aparacita document, right? Which is one of, and one of the real gifts that uh, the South, South American bishops have given the church is taking popular piety seriously as a theological locus right? Which is nothing if not saying what is going on in this church and where is it going, right? So only bishops vote at synods? Historically, that has been the case. Um, I know that... But not at this one. But not at this one. At this one, there was the possibility for some brothers, I think, to vote. Well, this was, there was a controversy about this because yeah. you had non-ordained religious brothers who were attending the synod. You also had, obviously, non-ordained religious sisters, but the non-ordained religious brothers, some of, some of them had voting rights on um, proposals that were being put forward at the synod while the sisters did not. So, so you had a, a, a bit of a controversy there because the issue is not about the status of ordained or not ordained because neither the brothers nor the sisters were ordained. Yeah. So in all the synods of the Catholic church, you've never had women voting. That's right. Okay. And until recently, the bishops voted, but um, Francis, one, if we look at what happens in the, in the recent synods, there's much more of a sense that the bishops are actually making decisions together um, in the John Paul years, especially, it was very much the case that the draft document was was available before the, the bishops even gathered. There was conversation about it, and there was very there was at least a sense that it was very much a sort of rubber stamping um, by the bishops of that which was given to them. It was a ratification, essentially. Right. Yeah, rubber stamping is perhaps not the nicest way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just I'm just back in the fact that it's. It's the 21st century, and you've never had women vote at your synods? The 21st century is here. It's just not evenly distributed. It's just, like, not even sister. Like, not e- like, 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 you know, they're virgins. Like, they live in community. Like, I thought they might get a pass. So, for example, the Council of Trent. They're married is- to Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. 
Right, I make but, all Neil's decisions for him. <laughs> you, you, you can always count on Robin if you say something slightly, uh, slightly snarky. She's always going to come up over the top of you. It's really, it's actually really liberating. Yeah. 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 Well, so, and this is another theological place where we have to sort of engage with this, that um, in the ways we've talked about how the church makes decisions, we have absolutely welded together jurisdiction and ordination. So it's actually not possible to hold jurisdiction in a lot of ways within the Catholic Church canonically without also being ordained. Which means that there's a sort of hard and fast limit within the curia beyond which non-ordained people can't really be appointed. Um, now that's canonical, not necessarily, although it's it, like all canon law, it's supposed to be a sort of outgrowth of theology, right? And so, but it's not like there haven't been non-ordained cardinals before. I think the last ones died in the 1800s. Um, it's the Code of Canon Law of 1917 that sort of clarifies that only bishops can be cardinals. Only um, ordained, not, not bishops. We, we've yeah, had non, right. well, in, in non-bishop non cardinals very recently. Right, but I think that's a code, change in the Code of 83 from 17. In the, oh, 83, okay. Um, and there, um, even then, so Dulles, etc., are offered an episcopacy, an off, offered ordin and, and were allowed to turn it down. Mm. So it's not that they a lay person or a, or a priest, excuse me, it's not that a priest was made a cardinal, it's that it was, a priest was made a cardinal and offered to be made a bishop along with it, and in Dulles's case, turned it down, for example, right? Right. But this not would have been the really... case for Henri de Lubac and Yves Congar and yep. Baltzar had he not died. And... Yeah. Now you've got me really curious about the, like, Anglican kind of equivalent, like, canon law, because, like, our lay people don't have jurisdiction either. Like, we have bishops and priests with jurisdiction, but we send lay delegates to the diet like and they have their own house essentially at the synods to vote but that's a kind of jurisdiction because right? they can I guess that's true right right so lay people in the catholic church don't have any jurisdiction no i mean we can participate this is and this is older language but prior to the second vatican council lay people didn't have an apostolate there was a participation in the apostolate of the hierarchy so I wrote. I mean, this is my episode for like sounding stupid, but man, I really appreciate Vatican II a lot more now. Well, and this is why it's important then that we start talking about like Gaudium et Spes is the, the constitution on the church in the modern world, not the constitution of the church and the modern world for this reason, right? That it's, right. there was really this sort of church and world division in the previous theology. And lay people belonged to the world, and clergy really belonged to the church. Um, sort of. I mean, not that anyone would say the baptized weren't parts of the church, but even in English, and this is, I know Anglicans use this terminology, you can say, my son is going into the church by meaning like that he's going to be ordained, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So. Hmm. Um, and so I wonder, you know, I, I wrote this thing for Church Life Journal a few weeks ago about Francis's letter about the sexual abuse scandal. Um, and one of the things I noted in that was the, the ambiguity of the, um, plural personal pronouns that he uses we uh, and and in the beginning of the document it seems like we is making reference to the clergy and bishops and so forth um and then but further on he starts talking about the, the entire people of god and there's pronouns connected with that too um and so i wonder if in the shift you've described between the negative definitions uh of the of the laity and the ordained to the sort of concentric circle model and then the sort of mobilized concentric circle model of, of Francis, if um, there isn't needs still for some kind of, without undoing the sort of concentric circle and mobilized concentric circle model, um, now a kind of return to a theological, definition is kind of a strong word, but a, but a theology of the laity, um, Qua laity? No, I think that's exactly right. Because um, you end up with these pronoun problems. Yep, that's right. And I think it probably where it's going to happen, I, and this is something I meant to bring up earlier, but didn't, um, the way that sort of concentric circle model works theologically and not just politically is really in terms, it's, it's, it's a sacramental engagement. And this is also all through Lumen Gentium. And um, it's very much, of course, de Lubach's point in Corpus Mysticum, right? That the 
early medieval use of true body to refer to the church and sacramental body to refer to the Eucharist. Um, in Paul McPartland's language, the Eucharist makes the church, right? That the point of the Eucharist in a sense is to make the church for the purpose of serving the mission in the world, right? And therefore the church is Christ's body, the way that the Eucharist is Christ's body in a, as, a, as a proleptic sacramental thing. And then since baptism is also a proleptic sacramental thing, we might be able to develop a theology of lay people arising from baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, uh, that again, you can't say, all of that isn't also true of, of the ordained because they don't lose their baptism by being ordained. But it might give us a way of talking positively about, theologically positively, about the laity's calling to be Christians in the world um, as, some, as part of this sacramental body. Can I, can I ask a question about um, authority here? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it seems to me sort of obvious that the, the emphasis on synodality um, can, be, can be interpreted as a kind of practical outworking of the emphasis on Episcopal collegiality that's, that's such a, a predominating feature of sort of Vatican II ecclesiology. Um, and yet, there seems to be, uh, at least in my mind, some confusion about the kind of authority that's being exercised in the synod. Because at one level, it's, it's very much about the College of Bishops getting together to hash through particular problems. But then a, a, a document gets produced, and in the case of the Synod on the Family, right, Amoris a Laetitia comes out. Mm -hmm. um, and then the conversation shifts from uh, decisions that were made collectively by the College of Bishops to the relative authority sort of within Francis's ordinary magisterium uh, to, to make, say, make decisions about uh, the indissolubility of marriage or something, to, to pick a controversial point. But the, but the arguments that come out of, you know, say the authors of the Dubia or things like that seem to be about really about Francis's authority as Pope rather mm -hmm. than on the authority of the bishops who were at the synod to which Francis's document is a, merely a kind of reflection. So, so what, what exactly is the kind of authority that's being exercised within a synod? A really good question. Um, in order to talk about it, I'm going to back off from the synods, the, the Roman synods, uh, to the things like the USCCB. So, when the Code of Canon Law uh, is being, of 1983 is being put together, there's a conflict that arises out of two different things said about bishops in Vatican II, both of which are positive statements about their authority. Um, this argument, by the way, is highlighted nicely by Miriam, I always have trouble with her last name, Vilens, uh, who's a Dutch canonist. Um, I think she's a Dutch canonist. She's her, she has a really excellent book on sharing the Eucharist, which was her habilitation. Um, anyway, she makes this point about the, uh, about the Code of Canon Law of 1983, and the two things that are coming into conflict are, on the one hand, the Second Vatican Council really wants more local expressions of Episcopal collegiality to be making decisions for local churches, something more like, say, the Synod of Toledo, right? On the other hand, because bishops have full ordinary jurisdiction within their unmediated jurisdiction within their diocese. The code, the legislators are really worried about putting anything above a local bishop's authority within his diocese. And so we end up with this compromise in the Code of Canon Law of 1983 that ends up making things like the USCCB actually have no legislative authority in their own voice. Because the USCCB or the Canadian bishops or whoever can really rule in one of two ways. Either they can vote unanimously for something, in which case every bishop is doing it in his own voice. Or if two-thirds of them agree to something, it goes to Rome for a recognitio, in which case the Pope is doing this in his own voice and overruling the bishops who disagreed. Now, notice that, for example, at Vatican I, they had no trouble voting, right, and having bishops who lost right? And 
and have them, you know, lose. Uh, and maybe that's, maybe it's a good thing to not do that. Um, but there's also a model of, um, I mentioned earlier, I lived in that place in Washington state where I was a potter and we did everything according to a consensus model of decision-making, right? And there's a misunderstanding of consensus model that it means everybody agrees about everything. And every time we got new people in community, we had to like, there was this difficult time of explaining to them that yes, you could allow something to happen that you didn't agree with because otherwise you get nothing done, right? And so there's probably a model, a political model halfway that's not just voting and it's called consensus model and isn't universal approbation, right? Like, um, and, but the US, the code only allows sort of either the bishops to make this decision all individually together or the popes to, to sort of impose things. And so in some sense, a similar thing is happening with the synods where they're not, um, they're consultative in some ways to what, to a papal document that comes out because the okay. bishops, it's not all the bishops, it's not an ecumenical council. And so there's, it's not clear that they would be, they would be using the, their, um, their joint charism of teaching as bishops in that way. So, so, they, they, so they really are functioning in an advisory role to the exercise of, of the Bishop of Rome's universal jurisdiction. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have to stop us there. Um, but thank you so much, Jacob. I learned yeah. just oodles and oodles. Um, Jacob has very graciously uh, agreed to do treasures old and new for us. So thanks. Why don't you uh, have at? So I, I realized when I was thinking about this that neither my treasure old nor new has anything to do with our conversation. Perfect. Um, and in fact, both of them have more to do with things that you all care about in some sense more than I do. Ooh, yay. So um, my, my old treasure is actually a pair of books by Stephen J. Duffy, um, The Dynamics of Grace and then The Graced Horizon, which I got to Marquette and um, was suddenly surrounded by people having an ongoing and unending argument about nature and grace. Uh, and having come from a Benedictine school where we fought mostly about liturgy, I was just lost. And so uh, Susan Wood sat me down and, and gave me Duffy's books and said, read these, they will help. And in fact, they did. Uh, Ryan's holding up Dynamics of the Grace. Dynamics of Grace. I, I sat in on uh, Susan Wood's Nouvelle Theology course and engaged endlessly in uh, debates over the fundamental ontology of nature and grace, about which Susan Wood had exactly zero interest. Yeah. No, she did not want to answer my questions, but she gave me good books to read, yeah. which, you know, that's a good thing to do. Absolutely. And I will say, you know, I don't know all of the people as well as the others in these books, but I think he gets Luther exactly right. Um, and Ryan tells me that he's pretty good on Aquinas. So, and pretty good on, on Lonergan's account of Aquinas, actually. Right. Yeah. So given that, I'm willing to trust him on all of the others. My new treasure is from David Turnblum, who's at the University of Portland. Um, and he had a book come out last year, Ryan, is that right? Ryan is now holding this up. <laughs> Ryan is, in fact, holding up the copy I gave him, I think. Um, That's correct. Which is called Speaking with Aquinas, A Conversation About Grace, Nature, and the Eucharist. 2017. It's a lit press book. Um, and what I really, really appreciate about this book is not only the, the way he talks about how grace functions in the Eucharist, um, and also that he found a piece of, of Thomas that I love to bring out to my students because it's just so beautifully weird. He says that um, grace is present in the sacraments the way that a bench is, pre is present in an axe. Right. So it's an instrumental causality. Clears it right up. Yeah, exactly. And it's, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just, I love that image. But then mo more importantly, even is the fact that he tells us that um, if we want Thomas to be able to be part of an actual dialogue with anything, we have to allow him to have his own context from which to speak and not sort of turn him into a denatured universal system, which can't speak to anyone. What was the big, uh, floating head in power rangers does anybody remember the name of that character so, so zordon. Zordon. Yeah, zordon yeah i like thomas's zordon yeah this authoritative floating head yeah so definitely find david's book uh speaking with aquinas it's it's worth your time wonderful thank you well that's our show 
thank you, Jacob, so much for being on. You can find the show on Twitter at SystematicPod. If you want to send us an email, you can send us an email to systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and uh, you can listen to us on SoundCloud. A lot of people are still doing that. One of these days I'll get around to putting us up on Stitcher and all the other ones. Um, but, you know, I got toddlers, so you're going to have to just wait. Uh, our intro and outro music, as always, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Thank you, Trent Reznor, and your Creative Commons license. And this week, be responsible. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Thank you.